Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And my name is Julie Douglas. Julie, you've been camping before, right? Yes, I have. So you know the deal. Leave no trace, right? Leave nothing behind. You bring in all your stuff, whether you're bringing in a backpack or a whole truckload of camping equipment. You need to leave with only your things, taking only memories with you, and leaving no litter behind, right? What? I mean, that's just the way it works. You so. don't just bury all your pots and pans <laughs> and well, then mark it? Well, yeah, well, I mean, okay, if you're coming back to the same camping place... Maybe you could make that argument. But Okay, okay. I see I see a concept that you're coming up here yeah. with. But. but the whole idea is that we want to be able to come back to that place mm-hmm. and enjoy it in its natural form without having to put up with a bunch of litter and a bunch of garbage changing that environment. Now, we generally don't have to worry, though, about that pot or pan that Julie left behind at the campsite traveling at immense speeds, like five miles per second, and smashing through my cranium. Right, clocking us in the head. I mean, that's just not a problem here at our campsites on Earth. But out there in the in the wild yonder, it is a problem, right? Which is directly tied to this idea of this big sky theory, right? Right. The big sky theory, I mean, the answer is in the words there. Big sky. There's a lot of sky. There's a lot of space. It's huge. We couldn't possibly litter enough to make space junk a problem, right? That was the old way of looking at it. If you have a space Mm -hmm. mission, go up there, solar panel floats off. No big deal. There's plenty of room. Some nuts and bolts fall out of my pockets. No big deal. Satellite's dead. Ah, just leave it. This big sky theory. We can we can just leave everything wherever it yeah, happens so, to die, so and vast, it'll never be a problem. It'll never come home to roost. This problem of space junk, ah, uh, but it is a problem. And it has come home to roost. NASA has tracked around sixteen thousand bits of debris. That's a lot. Mm-hmm. Measuring over ten centimeters, about four inches. But there are millions of smaller bits and pieces that are thought to be swarming up in the cosmos. And the more we involve ourselves in orbit and in outer space, the more stuff we wind up with up there. Like, uh, just to look at sort of the timeline for this, if we look back at 2005, we had a catalog of uh, debris up there somewhere in the neighborhood of 10,000 pieces. And that's just stuff that we were tracking right. and knew of specifically. By 2010, that number had reached 15,000. So it had risen by 5,000 pieces of space junk in just that short amount of time. And fast forward to today, you have more and more players in the space game involving themselves in the space game and taking that big sky approach to space exploration. Well, especially when you get into the privatized territory as well, right? right? This becomes a real issue. The other issue is that space junk travels at speeds up to 17,500 miles per hour. So that's fast enough for a tiny piece of debris to damage a satellite or a spacecraft. It's a really big concern. Or the International Space Station, which we will talk about later. Mm -hmm. Can potentially set up a chain reaction where Mm -hmm. you have one piece is suddenly crashing into another, which causes debris to spiral out from that to hit other pieces. In many cases, we're talking about dead objects hitting other pieces of garbage. But Mm -hmm. then what happens when this stuff collides with operative telecommunication satellites or exploratory missions or manned missions? You can see where this becomes a very dangerous problem very quickly. That's something called cascading collisions, this Mm -hmm. idea that things are slamming into each other and just creating more and more and more debris. So this has come home to roost. And let's talk about back in the day, back in the 70s, when this was just a theory And a guy named Donald Kessler, who was assigned to the Environmental Effects Project Office at NASA's Johnson Space Center in Houston, became very interested in the craft that was abandoned in the void. 
Yeah, he wrote uh, an important paper at the time. <laughs> it's become more important over time. Yeah. Uh, at, originally, he was having to really sort of shout on the mountain to get people to listen to him. But he wrote a paper called Collision Frequency of Artificial Satellites, the Creation of a Debris Belt. And his argument was that if we, and this is early on, everyone else seems to be sticking to this big sky theory. Mm-hmm. But Kessler says, look, if we don't start controlling this now, if we don't start mitigating the problem now, we are going to reach a point where we basically have a belt of debris around the planet. If you've ever seen the movie WALL-E, uh, the depictions yeah. of Earth in that, in which the Earth is just so crowded with satellites that for anything to enter or exit the Earth's atmosphere, they have to sort of move things out of the way. Mm-hmm. That's basically what he's talking about, except in his scenario, we reach a point with that to where we are stranded on Earth, basically. We are suddenly limited by what we can do and what we can explore in space. We kind of dig our own grave, if you will, by just clotting our atmosphere with all of this junk. Yeah, yeah. And well, not our atmosphere, but our upper orbit. Right, right. I mean, it does constrain our ability to explore the universe because it's kind of hard to launch something and then know that it's going to be taken out by mm-hmm. a stray piece of space junk. But he was basically saying, look, I estimate this to happen in 30 to 40 years. Mm-hmm. Now, this was alarming. It really was an eye-opener. Even though people like Arthur C. Clarke, who actually conceived of communication satellites, had talked about this in the 40s, I believe. It was really Kessler who spent the time looking out at the cosmos and looking through his telescope and saying, okay, guys, this is... This it's is a real possibility. A, yeah, yeah, this was a bigger problem than we thought. So as a result... Now, Clark, his vision of it was very apocalyptic. He was, he was talking about like a new dark age. R- oh, yeah, he yeah. was. I, yeah, he was actually yeah. saying that it would take civilization down to the studs. Yeah, and right? you know, he's fictioning it up a little bit, but... Maybe not too much, you know? But that is the idea extrapolated to the nth degree, right? You can take down all the communication satellites and, you know, all this sort of technology that we deal with today and our life is predicated on, and Mm -hmm. you could really sort of fold up humanity in this sense. But but we're we're not there. I do want to say that NASA set up the Orbital Debris Program office in response to Kessler's paper. But I'm not going to say it's a to- it was a toothless organization, but it wasn't. It, was, it didn't really seem like a big concern. It was like, oh yeah, this could happen. It's a theory. Let's set some Let's throw guidelines. Some money at it, set up a committee, and uh, I mean, <laughs> you know how that goes. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. And the guidelines, eh? They, they didn't really help to actually reduce space waste. So here we are. 30 years later, right on time, 2009, we have a couple of events that really usher in this idea that Kessler didn't just have a theory. It is a syndrome. Yeah. And that's why it's called Kessler syndrome. Yeah. February 10th, 2009, we had two satellites, Iridium-33, which was uh, flying north, relaying a phone conversations. And then there was this long-retired Russian communication satellite called Cosmos 2251. Mm-hmm. And it's just tumbling east in an uncontrolled orbit. So you have an active satellite and an inactive satellite. And then they collide. And this was not even a collision that was on the forecast. Because right. at this time, we, we knew some of the stuff that was going on up there, and we can sort of extrapolate what might run into what at what time. But this wasn't even scheduled to happen, if you will. They just ram into each other, and of course, just completely annihilate each other yeah, and they, create all these other pieces of, of debris. Right. They smash into something like a 2,100 pieces, and uh, this is over the Siberian tundra. And although it doesn't really affect us too much, I mean, I think there's some drop calls from this one collision, right? The fact of the matter is, again, this debris, this cloud of debris was created 
And we know that that begets even more and more debris. And it was a big wake-up call. And according to Wired.com, Evan L. Schwartz, great article on this, he said that each shard, an orbiting cannonball capable of destroying yet another hunk of high-priced hardware. That's the real problem there. Yeah, I mean, immense expense going into any of these satellites, communications, or otherwise. So the idea that you just have junk up there that could conceivably just wipe it out. Mm-hmm. People suddenly started taking even more notice following this 2009 event. Yep, so pretty soon a military unit called the Space Surveillance Network was set up. They began to monitor the debris. By 2010, they were looking at 1,000 active satellites, 3,700 inactive satellites and rocket pieces, and another 15,300 objects the size of a fist or larger. And these numbers started to bear out this idea that we could have maybe 75 collisions a day. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't include the half million smaller pieces of debris the size of a marble or larger, all of which is, again, capable of just wiping out satellites or you know other things that are very valuable to us. Another key incident that happened, and this was just a few months after the Cosmos Iridium collision. Mm-hmm. And I think I, I imagine most of you remember this. I remember it because working here at How Stuff Works and any newsy and sciencey that happens, we suddenly latch onto a, a bit. And this was big news because 2009, suddenly there's an object, a piece of space junk, headed towards the International Space Station. Yeah. So this is an immensely expensive piece of equipment here. We're talking in excess of $100 billion worth of equipment, human beings on board, right. um, a lot invested in this. This is part of our space legacy moving forward. And uh, there's a piece of junk headed towards it that could conceivably wipe it all out. So we have to rush everybody on board into essentially a lifeboat. One of it's the kind of like capsules. a panic room. Right, yeah. Because <laughs> they're like, all right, it might miss us, but it might hit you. And if it hits us, we're going to have to somehow save you guys. So get into this lifeboat mm-hmm. and we'll just see what happens. Now, luckily, it missed by a few miles. Which, but, but it's still in the vastness of space. I mean, right, that's, that's like shaving call. off a little piece of hair on your head there. Mm-hmm. And it was at like a couple months after that, another piece of space junk hurled toward the International Space Station, this time missing them by just a mile. And this fragment would have had an impact equal to a truck bomb. In fact, I've got a quote here from Jack Bacon. He's a senior NASA scientist. He says, a 10-centimeter sphere of aluminum would be like 7 kilograms of TNT. It would blow everything to smithereens. I mean, we can shield these things to a certain degree. There's a project at NASA's Johnson Space Center in Houston where they basically take chunks of plastic and and basically space junk, and they just fire them at shields and panels to see exactly what the damage is. Mm -hmm. And they're able to determine within a certain size of space junk, they can sort of shield something out. But when you're getting these larger pieces, it it becomes increasingly impossible to create a space vessel or a satellite that could withstand that kind of damage. Right, right. Especially when you're talking about delicate materials such as solar cells. Yeah, and just to give everybody an idea, too, I mean, we're talking, again, I think you talked about this, some tools or some nuts and bolts, mm-hmm. that kind of space junk, to the size of rocket stages, the size of school buses. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, there's an immense variety of space junk up there. Now, one might ask, doesn't all this stuff eventually just fall into the Earth's atmosphere and burn up? Because that was part of the big sky theory as well, that, all right, if we leave something up there, A, it's not going to be a problem, and B, it's eventually just going to drift down and, and reenter the Earth's atmosphere and probably burn up and or 
land in the middle of nowhere or more likely in the middle of the ocean somewhere, which is what most re-entering most space does. junk does. Occasionally right. something will fall in somebody's backyard, mm-hmm. and it's a n- local news story, front page for the next five years. <laughs> but for the most part, yes, that's true. It just falls in the middle of nowhere. But it can take decades for something in orbit to actually re-enter the atmosphere, mm-hmm. which is why you still have some of the original satellites that went up there. I mean, they're all still up there. Right. Dead well, and again, and floating. And not all of them burn up upon re-entry, right? Because it depends on the size. Right, right. Depends on the size. A rocket stage the size of a school bus isn't necessarily going to burn up there. So we're going to take a quick break. And when we get back, we're going to talk about this idea of how we can contain space junk and getting our janitorial services up there and taking care of it. All right, we're back. I want to throw out another quick fact. This is from the Wired article you mentioned earlier. But 1962, that's when the Telstar 1 satellite relayed the first phone call and TV signals across the Atlantic and ended up failing the next year. So 1963, this thing dies. It's still up there, just up there Mm -hmm. doing nothing, just a big piece of space junk floating around. And, And in the decade since, of course, we've rolled out more and more stuff. Just to give you a little idea about how we end up with that huge number of 15,000 Plot. Well, now it's up to 16,000 pieces of space junk. Yeah, I mean, and it's really hard to actually keep tabs on anyway, because as we talked about, yeah. it's you know you have some particles that are so small that you can't even really gauge them um, right. or track them, I should say. Another incident that kind of woke everyone up to the dangers and the problems posed by space junk, January 11, 2007, the Chinese government staged this demonstration of its military might by basically shooting down, or not really shooting down, but blowing up one of its retired satellites mm-hmm. with something called a kinetic kill vehicle. So to demonstrate that they had the potential to take out a satellite, which in a military scenario would be very valuable. These satellites are keys to telecommunication networks, Mm -hmm. to our ability to get strategic information about what an enemy is doing. And they were demonstrating, yes, we can take these out. Satellite killing technology, I mean, that's that's been on the military playlist for some time now. Mm-hmm. But they, they demonstrate this. They blow up this old satellite. Big deal, right? They're just shooting some junk in the backyard. There are people out in the sticks that do that every day. Uh-huh. But uh, when they shot this thing, it blasted it into 3,000 trackable pieces. That's just trackable pieces, but 3,000. So one military demonstration later, that number that we have, that tally of measurable space junk up there rises by 3,000 pieces. Yeah, I mean, it was a total jerk move. I mean, it's really irresponsible knowing what we know to a certain degree now. Mm-hmm. But the problem with this is only 6% of the pieces have re-entered the atmosphere. And here's the interesting thing. Half of those pieces came down in the last 12 months. And this has to do with increased solar activity, which normally we kind of, it's not something we get really excited about in terms of like, yeah, increased solar activity. This idea of solar maximum or peak activity could actually be a boon to us in terms of cleaning up space junk. Right. The sun, as we've mentioned before, is pumping out energy. It's pumping out energy at the Earth, and some of this is shielded uh, by our um, electromagnetic field. But the rest of it actually reaches the Earth powers the Earth, gives us a lot of the stuff we need. And if we have all this space junk floating around out there, an increase in that solar activity can stir things up a bit. Yeah, in fact, if we've got these solar flares and these coronal mass ejections, which, by the way, when I talk about this solar maximum, this peak activity is an 11-year period that is going to come to fruition in 2013, I believe, in terms of the, Mm -hmm. the ultimate amount of solar activity. So... Think of it as blasting the atmosphere with heat with these solar flares and coronal mass ejections, you know, sort of raining upon the Earth's atmosphere. This causes the atmosphere to expand. And this expansion pushes some of the gas to higher altitudes, which creates 
drag on orbiting space debris, that causes it to slow down. And then as the debris slows down, Earth's gravity pulls it to the lower altitudes where the atmosphere is even thicker. So then you get even more drag, right? Mm -hmm. And then you get slower debris. So eventually the debris re-enters the atmosphere sooner than it would without the solar influence. And here's here's the good news. It burns up safely for the most part. So that's why we've seen such an influx of that Chinese satellite, of those pieces coming in. So there's this idea that the sun could actually be very helpful, at least until 2013, when it when it reaches its peak capacity or, or uh, maximum output in that 11-year period, in, in helping us to keep tabs on this a bit. Okay. So we're keeping tabs. We've been keeping tabs. Occasionally, the sun might accidentally help out. Yeah, sort of solar hoovering. Yeah. But what else are we doing, right? That's the big question. We can exercise a little bit of forethought in the way we, we plan missions and, uh, uh, you know, moving forward. But there's still a lot of junk up there. What are we doing, if anything, to clean it up? Uh, well, there's uh, something called the Swiss Janitor Satellite. This comes to us from the Swiss Space Center at EPFL. And it's the launch of the Clean Space One. This was in, back in February, I believe. Mm-hmm. And it's a project that developed and built the first installment of a family of what they see as satellites that are uh, specially designed to clean up space debris. And the idea is to launch a small grabber spacecraft to chase after orbiting pieces of space junk. And then it'll attach itself to it, deorbit, and the whole enchilada then re-enters the atmosphere where it burns up on re-entry. There are a few other plans, too, that involve basically microsatellites or mini-satellites that go around and essentially net this stuff up. Yeah. And uh, kind of form like not really a Katamari ball, but they form a nice big sack of space trash and then bring it mm-hmm. back to the atmosphere to reenter. Another tactic that we've been using is making sure that we take retiring spacecraft up to a graveyard orbit mm-hmm. so that we know they're going out of commission. Well, let's move them into an orbit where they're not going to be interfering with anything that's actually active. Okay, so just sort of pushing it away from us a little right. bit more. Yeah. Right. In the same way that you move your junk car into the backyard <laughs> as opposed to leaving it in the front yard. Uh, it's still there. You just can't see it from the street. Right, right. House values go up. There's this idea of using little puffs of gas that I kind of like. It's just from a team from the University of Michigan. And they're thinking about using pulses of gas fired into the path of debris. And this would increase, again, the drag on orbiting space junk, leaving it to plunge downward into the Earth's atmosphere. And the pulses themselves would leave no no trace so there we go, our, our mm-hmm. Boy Scouts credo there. And it also leaves no solid material in orbit. Another really interesting tactic that NASA was pretty excited about comes from Tethers Unlimited. This is a Seattle-area space contractor, and they've been working on this idea for years. But their idea is to create this thing called a Rustler, which is a mid-sized vehicle, about 400 pounds, and it piggybacks a ride on other satellites. So it, yeah. it, so the idea here is let's cut some corners. It'll just hitch a ride with some sort of big pricey corporate or national supported telecommunication satellite mm-hmm. launch or, or mission launch. And then once up there, uh, it's aimed to pull off this really neat tethering technique. So it goes into orbit and it sidles up to this piece of space junk and it attaches an electrodynamic tether. This is a wire mesh tail that's up to six miles long. And then it shoots an amp of current through that material. And this current interacts with the Earth's magnetic field, producing a drag effect that lowers the debris toward the atmosphere and reentry. Yeah, and that one's really cool because that seems pretty promising in the perspective of gathering up debris, but not only that, just being able to afford it. I think that was estimated somewhere in the tens of millions, whereas some of the other 
ideas and projects we're talking in the billions yeah they're saying this one would just to do a test mission mind you that would take out a few tons of trash would be tens of millions of dollars Mm -hmm. which which again puts this whole problem into perspective like like so many problems (laughs) that humans get themselves into on a personal or national scale you don't work on a problem early enough it ends up costing you far more later on and it reaches a point where you have to either pay that bill or just be content with sticking where you are well and this is the kind of problem too it's just like your house like you don't necessarily want to put all your money into you know redoing the roof but you have to right Mm -hmm. because otherwise you're going to be exposed to the elements but that's not the cool thing you see from the street same thing with nasa it's like that's not our flashy cool stuff but we really do need to take care of the space junk the problem is that they don't necessarily have a gigantic budget in the first place and it's certainly not something that they have dedicated to this problem in the 2011 budget from last year they started the four hundred thousand dollar research grants to try to look into this and that idea that you just talked about was was in there and, and very viable so it's just a question of, that, of of when and how many dollars are going to lay down here. And then it's a question of exponential numbers here. Again, this is from Evan L. Schwartz. He says, uh, and this is the Wired article, Waste Management, he says, its proliferation, space junk, threatens not only current and future space missions, but also global communications, mobile phone networks, satellite television, radio broadcasts, weather tracking, military surveillance, even the dashboard GPS devices that keep us from getting lost. The number of manufactured objects cluttering the sky is now expected to double every few years as large objects weaken and split apart, and new collisions create more Kesslerian debris, leading to yet more collisions. So it's kind of a runaway environment here. Yeah, and like we said before, it it affects modern life on so many levels. I mean, telecommunications, certainly space exploration, but national security. Just, uh, again, our entire telecommunications network has grown to depend on these satellites. Now, you could argue, I guess, that if we had a completely garbaged-up orbit, if we had this debris belt going on, then uh, it would be harder for, say, like a vampire spaceship to drift into our atmosphere and cause problems or the or, sure. the, or the head of a planet-sized transformer. Uh, <laughs> you know, good luck getting into our junked-up atmosphere mm-hmm. and, and causing trouble for the denizens of Earth. But on the other hand, we, we might be trapped in this dark age that Clark warned us about. It's possible. But, I mean, I, I think that the fact that it's come to life and it's now a priority and that people are realizing that space junk may drop in your backyard if it's not under control pretty soon is a problem. Yeah, and I, <laughs> if I know anything about, uh, about the human species, once we know that there's a problem and we know that we've been causing it, we are really good about fixing it and uh, addressing it. So I think you're right. Let's be optimistic about this. Right, okay. Now now you're just being facetious. <laughs> Let's just put that out there on the line. All right, so there you go. Space junk. Let's work on it. Let's come up with some ideas. All right. I'm going to have the robot stay in his closet right now and not bring us out any of our listener mail. So he has a bunch of it. And I'm just going to mention two quick things. First of all, the Stuff to Blow Your Kid's Mind video series. It is live. We are linking to it. Uh, by the time you hear this, it will have been live for... Uh, a week or so. Check it out. Ten episodes. In each episode, Julie and I tackle a different science experiment that you and or your child can try at home. We will walk you through the basics of these different scientific properties, ranging from volcanism to magnetism. We just go through it from the personal perspective in the experiment through the larger world-based experience and then discuss how this connects us to the cosmos. So the idea is 
as the title suggests, to blow your kid's mind or blow the mind of the child in you. So check it out. We're really proud of it and think it's a fine product. Also, if you have really cool photos that you have taken, something that blows your mind that it exists or exists in the way that you captured it on film, share that with the world. Check out the Stuff to Blow Your Mind photo contest. Uh, It's an upload tool. You can upload your cool photo under various categories, including stuff like gross and awesome. Upload that stuff. Vote on your and other images. You might even get to win an iPad. What? Yeah. (sighs) Can I upload something? No. Well, no, you can upload something. Just don't expect to win. All right. Yeah. Yeah. But still, I mean, the fun thing about it is seeing these images. and uh, Yeah, they're very cool, actually. Yeah. As of this recording, it's in its early stages, so there's still a lot of images coming in, and uh, I'm just, I, I check it out every day because I'm excited to see what kind of stuff is going to show up there. There's some really funny stuff showing up as well. Yes. I mean, not just stuff that'll, like, knock your socks off, make you reevaluate, you know, reality around you, but some, some good animal fun LOL stuff. Yeah, and if, and if you upload something onto that feature that is related to a podcast that we've recorded, share it on our Facebook account, and we'll we'll throw some votes at it. We'll spread the word. So if you want to find us on Facebook, we are Stuff to Blow Your Mind on there. Just search for it there. And if you want to find us on Twitter, we are Blow the Mind. And you can always drop us a line at BlowTheMind at Discovery.com. Be sure to check out our new video podcast, Stuff from the Future. Join House to Fork staff as we explore the most promising and perplexing possibilities of tomorrow.